Let me warn you in advance today as we look into the Word of God together. Today's message ought to come with a warning label. You ever a warning label on anything? It says, you know, be careful, or a movie, maybe, be careful. This sermon ought to come with a warning label. Because I'd like to say this, the content that we're going to cover today is probably the most counter-cultural material um, topic that we can discuss um, in, our, in our culture today. The text today will challenge us to live out our Christian lives in a way that is totally opposite from how the culture around us informs us to live and shapes us and challenges us how to live. And, and so one thing, the Word of God, the reason we love the Word of God is that it offers God's perspective on us. And so this, I'm just warning this morning that this is going to mess with us. So, you know, here's my hope today. I hope God will mess with us. Matter of fact, this is what I want to do as we start. I want us to ask God to mess with us. I want us to open up our hearts. So join me in prayer for a minute. Father, um, as we are going to engage with your word, the gift you've given us of scripture, Lord, you've given us this gift to, to reveal yourself. You've given us this gift to encourage us. And you've given this gift to inform us and to shape us and to mold us. And Lord, what we're going to cover today from the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, this book that you've led us to be, to be engaging with over the last few weeks, well, we're going to come, we're coming to a section today that is that's going to challenge our worldview. It's going to challenge how we've been taught to live in a, in a post-Christian Western world. And Lord, this is our invitation today. And I pray on behalf of our whole church family. Our invitation today is that we give you permission to mess with us. We give you permission to make things known to us that otherwise we've kind of covered up in our hearts. Lord, we open up our souls to you today and we say, Lord, have access. We give you access and we don't want to resist. We don't want to fight whatever you have to say to us today. So Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit would be saying to us through the Word of God today. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We'll get to that text in a minute, but let me kind of set the, set the stage. In the, in the text that we're going to read today, the Apostle Paul is continuing on with his teaching that we started looking at last week about how Christians could live lives worthy of the gospel. That's how he said it. Live a life worthy of the gospel. And last week we looked at, at um, chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, and we found that there were three things that Paul said were challenges on, on what it would look like to live out this life of a life worthy of the gospel. And we found three things last week. Number one, we found out that he said we would fight for unity. That within the church family, we'd fight for unity. Let me give you a little, a little story. I didn't intend to say this, but I thought about this this morning. I did something. I actually asked Pastor Mitch to do something for me about a month ago. Um, there was a book I read a while back in, in uh, some coursework I was doing, and it's, it's a book called Streams of Living Water from Richard Foster. And, and it's a book about different, different um, streams within the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, and how you could take them from Jesus and trace them through biblical history and then trace them through world history, and, and how different Christians have looked at the same things differently, and they're all in the kingdom, but they, they kind of have different views on how things work out. And I work really hard at bringing our church pastors, our local pastors, into unity. 
And so I said, hey, do me a favor, Mitch. I want, to, I want from, our, from, our, from our, um, uh, our ministry to pastors, our Passion for Pastors ministry, I want you to buy me um, a number of copies of this book. And I wrote in each one of the books, and I said, you know what, pastor so-and-so, you know, I'm so glad that you are part of the kingdom of God. And I'm so happy that in this community you are fulfilling God's calling in your life. And then I went in two different meetings. I had a different pastors, and I, I handed those all out. What I was doing in that, and it's part of your ministry because it was part of our Passion for Pastors ministry. You guys allowed me to do that by giving to, to, to Kingdom Builders and Passion for Pastors. What we were doing is we're fighting for unity. Where the world's trying to call, tell, tell churches they're competitors, Portview's telling them, well, you're not my competitor. You're my brother. You're my sister. We're in this thing together. And so, so that's the kind of thing Paul is saying. When he's saying, how do we live a life worthy of the gospel? We looked at it last week. He said, first of all, you fight for unity. He said, then secondly, what you do, in, unis, in unity, you minister together. And we talked about how, who are you linking arms with? That especially in this COVID world where a lot of our big events we can't do anymore, we're still called to do ministry. And actually, I think we can do ministry better now because if we individually all take responsibility to link arms with a few other people, a husband and a wife or a family or friends or a connect group, and you link arms and go, how can we pray together and, and have a Lord use us to change the world together? So Paul said, how do you live a life worthy of the gospel? You're in unity, and in unity you minister together. And the last thing he said in that text was that, and you will stand strong together in adversity. And, uh, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out there's a lot of opposition to the kingdom of God in the, in the, in the, in the church today. You know, Jen, we talked about that before church. You're like, it seems like everything that's right is being made wrong, being told it's wrong. Well, that's true. It's only going to get worse as the time goes on, right? That's what the Bible tells us. So as a church... How do we live out living a life worthy of the gospel? That together we stand strong in whatever adversity comes our way. So that's what we reviewed last week. And the reason I'm saying it is because I want you to get a complete picture of what Paul's saying in these couple of, couple of verses about how do, we live to, how do we live out this life worthy of the gospel. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at Paul's words. And Paul's going to continue to lay out for us what a life lived worthy of the gospel looks like. So grab your Bible or fire up your phone. And turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to look at chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 3. You there? Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's stop right there. Now, in order to understand what Paul is saying here, let me explain how we structure this section. And I don't really would normally not have to do that, but to understand what Paul is saying, you have to really understand how he's structuring what he's writing right here. 
And so I'll kind of review it, and then we'll go through it. So verses 3 and 4, which we'll reread in a minute, he's making his teaching point. In verses 3 and 4, he's saying, this is why I want to teach you about what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. In verse 5, then, he's going to introduce an illustration that explains the point he's making. And then in verses 6 through 11, Paul quotes an early church hymn, or maybe it was a poem. We don't really know. Historians don't know. But it was a hymn or a poem. And this hymn or poem expressed the point that Paul was making. At least the first part of the poem or hymn does that. So with that understanding, 3 and 4 is the teaching point, and 5 is he introduced an illustration to help us understand the point, and 6 through 11, he, he, he recites a poem or a hymn to them that, that explains how his illustration makes the point he wants to do. With that being said, let's um, look at this. How does, how does this, what he says here, talk about how I live a life worthy of the gospel? So verses 3 and 4 again, living a life worthy of the gospel. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And here's the point he's making about how to live a life worthy of the gospel. He says it like this, succinctly. Consider others as more important than yourselves. I would contend that that is the most counter- cultural statement that could ever be made in our current cultural moment. We live in the ultimate I culture. Everything centers on me. Everything centers on I. All you hear is I have my rights. I am offended. I, me, I, me. And rarely do we hear the message from our culture that says, actually consider others' point of view or consider the value of others ahead of yourself. But that's the point. That's the teaching point. As Paul's talking about, how do you live a life worthy of the gospel? That's the point he's trying to make. That as a person living out that life, we would actually consider others as more important than ourselves. Then in verse 5, Paul introduces an illustration that will help us to, with our mind's eye, see what it looks like, to understand what it looks like to consider others as more important than ourselves, and the illustration is Jesus. And then in verses 6 through 11, Paul writes out an early church hymn or poem that expresses how Jesus puts himself ahead of other people. And in, in the poem, verses, the first half of it, verses 6 through 8, explain this. Then he includes the second half, and I think he does just because he wants to celebrate the goodness of Jesus. And let me give you a little side note about that. Some of your Bibles in, in, in this section, verses 6 through 11, you notice how your wording is set apart? It's written, the text looks different than the rest of it. Like if you have a new, a new Living Translation, I'm reading the New American Standard, it doesn't do that, but the New Living Translation, the Great Translation, you notice how it sets it apart? It's showing you that that was an early church document. Again, a hymn or a poem, and, and that you can say, oh, that's something different. He's quoting this, he's reciting this. So with that understanding of the structure... Let's look at what Paul says as a, a life worthy of the gospel and see how Jesus lived this out as an example. Three and four, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for their, your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In verse three, Paul uses some key words here. 
to help us understand what he's instructing Christians to do. And these words have to do with how we view ourselves and ourselves in particular in relation to the rest of other people and the rest of the world. And these three words that he uses are selfishness, empty conceit. We'll use that as one word. Selfishness, empty conceit, and humility. Those first two words are negative, right? They're negative. Selfish conceit. Paul is inviting us to look inside of ourselves and ask why we do the things that we do. Ask what motivates us. He says there's two things that motivate a lot of people. He says, first of all, selfishness. The idea that, this is what selfishness is basically. The idea that I am the center of the universe. That's what selfishness really is. I am the center of the universe. What goes on around me should be all for my benefit. Paul's saying that's the motivation of some people's heart. And then he says also, another motivation would be empty conceit. And what he means by that is the idea that I am better than or more important than other people, that I'm higher and you're lower. And these two deal with the motivations of the heart of humanity. Why do I do the things I do? Why do I treat people the way I do? Do I feel superior to other people and that's why I treat them a certain way? He would say that's called conceited. Or do I think my well-being is more important than other people's well-being? And he'd say that's called selfishness. And Paul says that these motivations don't line up with proper Christian living. Matter of fact, in verse 3, look what he says. He says, do nothing from these motivations. Do you think that that maybe that should cause us to pause and to ask ourselves if these are motivations, are the motivations that motivate us towards action? Do I value people or treat people poorly or differently? Because I really do believe in the core of my heart that I am superior. And maybe it's worked out like this, that I believe my value system is superior to theirs, and therefore I actually think I am superior to them. Well, I've been wrestling through this a lot over the past couple of weeks, as thinking, of God, God what, are you, what are you saying to us through this? And it, and it led me into a conversation with Suzanne. We were walking down by the lake like we do a lot, and I saw this person whose appearance, the best way I could say it, was unique, very unique, a fisherman down there. I'm a fisherman, so don't disrespect fishermen, but this guy was unique. Lots of unusual tattoos, lots of unusual piercings, a very unusual hairstyle, missing most of his teeth. And I caught myself as we locked eyes walking towards each other, I caught myself inside my own mind, it wasn't out loud, derogatorily kind of snarky comment like, my goodness, look at that guy. And I mean, I caught myself, you know, I didn't say it out loud, but I thought it out loud in my brain. It's like, look at that guy. And so as I, it, it, immediately when it happened, I was thinking about this text, and I was evaluating why I had such a reaction. And what it really came down to was a belief that I really thought who I am and how I look, and how I act, and the choices I make, is superior. That my way is right, and his way is wrong. Now, these aren't ethical issues about the style of your hair, and whether you have tattoos, and whether you have piercings. Those aren't ethical issues. They were 
life choice issues on how I want to express myself in the world. And I found myself saying, honestly, think, I think I'm superior. I think I'm better. That was the motivation of why I had the reaction. So I was talking through it with Suzanne as we were walking, and I was trying to be honest with myself, because understanding, friends, the way you grow and change, the only way it happens if you'll do honest self-evaluation and be honest before the Lord so that you can change. And I asked her, because the guy was un, undeniably noticeable, and I asked her what she felt in that situation when she locked eyes with the guys, with the guy. And she said this, She said, I wanted to understand their story. She said, I was wondering, why would would that person have made those life choices? Why would they have chosen to to show the whole world that appearance? And I said, so your your reaction wasn't negative at all. She said, no. She said, I looked at the person and just said, why would they have chosen to, to, to do that? You had to do it on purpose. Why? And I think this is the type of evaluation that Paul wants us to do with this text. He wants us to see if our motivations are, are, are in line with right Christian thinking so that we can bring them before Jesus and invite his transforming work of grace into our life to bring the kind of change that we need to continually be developing in Christ-likeness. That we, we evaluate so we, can, we ask him, please bring correction, please bring healing into my soul. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to do for Christian people in this text. And, and immediately upon that, that's what that I said, God help me. I don't want to look at that person and feel superior. Kind of like, what's wrong with me? So Paul says, don't do anything from the motivations of selfishness or empty conceit. He says, those are in wrong internal motives. What's he say? But rather, he says in the text here, verses 3 and 4, with a humble mind, that's what he's talking about, with humility, with a humble mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Not only looking out for your own interests, but also looking out for the interests of others. Look what he says here. It's a humble mind that leads to seeing others as important and and, and looking out for their interests as well as your own. And that brings me to a question. What's a humble mind look like? And I have an answer. It looks like this picture right here. That's what a humble mind looks like. You see, in order for Paul to explain what a humble mind is, an honest outlook toward others that comes from humility, he holds Jesus up is our example. That's what verse 5 is. He says, we don't understand this? It's Jesus. And then he quotes this old hymn that explains how Jesus is the embodiment for us to see, to grasp, to grapple with of what a humble mind is like. And that's what verses 6 through 8, this is what he's saying. He's quoting this hymn. He said, you want to understand I have a right motive, a right humble mind? Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus is the example of what it looks like to have a humble mind, a humble view of himself that led to putting others' needs in front of his own needs. Imagine this. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, a member of the Trinity who has always existed in the joyous, loving relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He, is, he existed forever in the form of God with all of its glory and all of its wonder and all of its goodness and benefit. But what's he saying here? Yet he did not regard his position as something that he had to grasp onto. Something that he had to cling on to. He didn't hold what he had as something he had to hold on to. But he could give it up for other people. Try to get a hold of this. And I'm not sure we can even come close to understanding the extent of this in our lives. That Jesus, because of his humility, his humility, not viewing himself as more important, as more deserving, as more entitled, How is that even possible? He's God, yet Jesus did not view himself as more important than you and me. And because of that, it says he didn't hold on to or grasp on to his position in the Trinity. He didn't fight to keep what was rightfully his. That's what this is about. How countercultural is that? All our culture says is, hold on to fight for what is yours. But Jesus gave up his position willingly to benefit others. And verse 7 says it like this. It explains. It says, he emptied himself. It's called the great kenosis, right? Emptying, right? Giving up of himself that theologians have grappled with for years. How is that possible? But he emptied himself of his godness in some way, and he became a lowly human. This idea of emptying himself is also translated, and I think in our context, it's the best way to translate it. It says this, instead of emptying himself, he laid aside his privileges. Man, when was the last time you heard something like that from our culture? Laid aside his privileges. He willingly laid aside the privileges that he had as the eternal God of glory Because in humility, he didn't view himself as more important than others. So he sacrificed himself to rescue others. And all that makes me say is, wow, how? I can't even grasp it. I am so formed by broken human culture that I can't hardly grasp the possibility of this. I walk past a person who looks a lot different than me and I go, oh, what's wrong with him? I'm so so shaped by the world. Jesus so valued others that he willingly gave up his privileges to benefit other people. And that activity extended beyond him leaving the privilege of heaven to willingly give his life in our place on the cross. His humility of mind, of heart, led to total self sacrifice for you and me. Let's grasp what Paul is saying to us here, church. He's saying that a life lived worthy of the gospel is one where Jesus is our example of sacrificial love. That's what he's saying. We're having a view of self and others that doesn't see ourselves as superior, 
as more deserving, as more important than others, leads to self-sacrifice for the benefit of those people who are around us. Paul says, if you want to know what a life worthy of the gospel looks like, he said, look at the man. Look at the God-man, Jesus, the Savior of the world. He says, that's the picture of what it looks like to live a life from right motives, live a life from a humble mind instead of selfishness or conceit. Now, I don't believe that Paul ever believed his motivations were as pure as Jesus. In fact, later in this same letter to the book of the people in Philippi, he wrote this in chapter 3, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but what I do is I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. But what do we see here is that that's the target we're aiming at. Paul's saying, I don't have it yet, but I'm aiming at a target. And Jesus is a target that we're aiming for. We live in a culture where the bar is really, 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 really low. Selfishness prevails. And conflict is constant because of empty conceit in people believing I'm more valuable, I'm more important, fighting for my rights because I'm more valuable really in my mind. I think my values are more important, therefore I'm more important. And so I'll put you down to raise myself up. But here's the deal, church. We are called to be different. We are to look at the example of Jesus and offer our lives to Him and partner with the transforming work of the Holy Spirit so that little by little we become more like Jesus. That is our ultimate goal of life. The ultimate goal of life is not accumulating. It's not winning. The ultimate goal of life is being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And Paul here is helping us to engage in the process of growth and change. So he shows us here, it begins by evaluating our heart and saying, God, I want a humble heart. Be honest. He's saying, be honest with our true motivations. Friends, I would say this. If we want to grow, each one of us has to take the risk of allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal to us our honest motives of our heart. Wrestling with this text, I got to tell you, it was very uncomfortable when I'm walking down the, through Coldock Park in downtown Port Washington and I see this other man and I instantly make a very negative judgment against the guy simply by his appearance. I never said one word, I've never met the guy in my life. I made a negative judgment against the guy simply by his appearance but our loving Holy Spirit who wants us to grow and change instantly said, Mark, why are you thinking that way? And it allowed me to see the truth about me so I could say, God, I don't want that to be me. I want to be like Jesus. Friends, that's what Paul's offering to us here, an opportunity to invite the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day activities as we walk through life and invite him to reveal to us the truth of the motives of our heart. He doesn't do that because he dislikes you. He does that because he loves you. And he wants to help us become what he 
was always intended. If sin never entered the world, we would all operate like Jesus. And he's saying, I have something better for you. He's saying the world's shaping you, misshaping you. But if you allow the Spirit of God access, then I'm going to help you to become more like Jesus. Being that, that honesty, that openness, is the first step in transformation in Christ-likeness.